calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Yes, it is. Hey, hey. And we have a very exciting topic for you today. We do. I enjoyed researching this one. Yeah. Uh, But in doing so, I literally have... I actually have, I told you that I had 11 pages. I actually have 17 pages. Oh, Jesus. But, but like six of those pages are the 10 points. Like, in, okay, in yes, their entirety. okay, good. Because I was going to say, I think that took up a lot, but I narrowed mine down to one, two, three, four, five, six pages, yeah. which I had, I think, probably about 10. So we are going to get right into it and we are going to try to stay on track uh no promises just so we can try and get through this in a timely manner we are gonna talk about the black panthers Panthers. yes not the movie (laughs) no 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 not black panther which is great and everybody should go watch it yes but the black panther little party yes Yes. and uh, a lot of my information we were just talking about how we both listened to the stuff you should know episode which is great very good there was also recently a two-parter on behind the bastards like seriously came out like a couple of weeks ago okay uh, about where they had um a man on there who was the son of a black panther who um and they were talking about the FBI and the Pro and That stuff is insane. Yes, and all of the... Like, I would love to hear that. Stuff that went into that. Yeah. Uh, and then I also got information from History.com yep. and Britannica.com as well. And then... So we almost have the same sources. Yes. Awesome. We, we have very similar yeah. sources. <laughs> I didn't read the Black Panther wiki page, but I did read, um, like, the Pro wiki page and, like, a couple of the other about- ones. 20 different sub tabs open to follow all of the names and what happened to them, who they are, how they're connected. Yes, yes. And it's a lot of people, but it's it's so, so, so fascinating. So should we, let's kind of talk about pre-Black Panther stuff. Let's talk a little bit first, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Sorry. It's fine. About our misconceptions, because... I had that first in my notes! Okay, great, because even... 
like I'm half black and my family is from Oakland. Like my grandparents got married in Oakland. My great grandmother had a house there. What like, era would that be? That would be during this time. Yeah. It was it was in the fifties. It was in the and late sixties. This 50s. was like late sixties. This is started the Black Panther started in the early sixties through yeah. the late sixties. So yeah, it was a, about this time. So even though my black family is like from this exact environment, yeah. um on my white side it was always framed to me as though the Black Panthers were a terrorist organization yes. or like an incredibly violent group, yes. which isn't it's it's far more nuanced than that. It is. It's not to say that there wasn't violence within the party, but to classify it as if that's all they were diminishes this, it. Yeah, and this like image of these like scary black men with guns yeah. without any context about what's happening there. Right. Um I think does a disservice. I blame J. Edgar Hoover. As you should. I blame J. Edgar Hoover. As you fucking should. As I fucking should. That piece of shit. Yep. All right. Well, before J. Edgar Hoover, before the Black Panthers, let's talk a little bit how uh, everybody kind of came to Oakland in the Bay Area. Uh, During World War II, tens of thousands of black families migrated from the southern states over to Oakland and other Bay Area cities to find work in war industries. And the children in these families really dealt with a different kind of uh, racism and poverty than the generation yes. before. Um, because by 1966, Jim Crow laws had been dismantled, but nothing else really changed much. The way that um, black people were treated in the, in the community was just as bad as ever. The black population was made to live in, quote, urban ghettos with high unemployment and substandard living. Yeah, I think it's important also for people to educate themselves on redlining and the ways in which that kind of disenfranchised the black community because black people were pushed into these neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, quote, less desirable neighborhoods, and they weren't able to buy or own property. Um, So at this time, a significant portion of black people were living under the poverty line. They were. um, And it was was really hard. And in addition to that, as we talked about in our massacre at Black Wall Street uh, episode, lynchings and violence against black people, even after the Jim Crow era, largely went unpunished and kind of ignored. Yeah, definitely. Well, and kind of to go off what you were saying, they were excluded from being a part of any sort of the white community. I mean, they were... So they were really kind of pushed away from being a part of the, you know, white community, the regular, quote-unquote, community, uh, because they were kind of pushed out of any political representation, top universities and middle class. And on top of that, the northern and western police forces were mostly white. And by 1966, only 16 out of Oakland's 661 police officers were African-Americans. So they didn't really have anybody. They didn't have any... um politicians on their side they didn't have the police force on their side Mm -hmm. they weren't allowed to integrate at all Mm -hmm. into you know the rest of society right and they were made to feel very very othered right and of course uh with as bad as it was or as different as it was racism wise in the west or in the north um, in the South, of course, it was worse. So in 1965, an NAACP member in North Carolina named Robert Williams wrote and released a book called Negroes with Guns. And that book advocated that black men start open, uh, openly carrying weapons yeah. and start defending themselves against racial violence. And again, this is something that we talked about in our 
Massacre at Black Wall Street episode uh-huh. where they did feel the need, like, they did not feel as though law enforcement was there to protect them. Yeah. In fact, very oftentimes they felt like those were the ones doing the harassment. They were, they were the ones to be afraid of. Yeah, and I, I want to point out very quickly that when you... If you are not part of the black community and you don't understand why black people have a fear of police, this is why. Yeah. And keep this in mind as we go through this story of of the origin of the black exactly. Panthers. Exactly. Well, and the interesting thing about that book as well is that, you know, a lot of people were starting to get frustrated because c- civil disobedience didn't really seem to be working to solve racism. You know, this right. is after MLK died mm-hmm. and everybody was kind of like, well, we've we've been doing this for so long. We've been doing the civil disobedience stuff, but nothing's changing. And then when this book came out and, um, you know, eventually down the line, when the Black Panthers realized that their Second Amendment rights uh, under California law can allow open carry, mm-hmm. they were very much inspired by, you know, this book, along with definitely inspired by Malcolm X. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And a lot of other more militant leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, but their message really... Uh, from the start, because when they started the Black Panther Party, it was the self. It was the um, Black Panther Party of self defense. Yes. So yeah. Uh, so Bobby Seale and Huey Newton were two young men who met in 1961 at Marriage Co- Merritt College in Oakland, California, and they kind of hit it off right away. They were different from each other, and actually, the Behind the Bastards episode. If you want more detail about like their childhoods and the ways in which they kind of um, came I would together, love but to learn more about that, yeah, it it's really very interesting. Yeah. We don't have time to go into all that today, yeah. but well, they did go to the uh, protest against the Pioneer Day celebration yes. at their college. To- Together. And the Pioneer Day uh, commemorates the pioneers who came to California that were not very welcoming to the black people that wanted to move west. So they decided to protest against this Pioneer yes. Day celebration. Uh, they were also part of this African Afro-American association where they read, debated, and organized a black nationalist tradition inspired by Malcolm X. Yeah, and they, they formed the Negro History Fact Group, which called the school to offer classes in black history because it was very clear that their history wasn't being taught as displayed with that Pioneer Day celebration because not only were black people kind of, of course, discriminated against whenever pioneers were moving into the West, but also they helped build the West and they didn't get any kind of recognition in these celebrations. So in 1966, partially inspired by um, William's book, but also inspired by the assassination of Malcolm X Mm -hmm. and the police murder of an unarmed black teen named Matthew Johnson, Mm -hmm. uh, Bobby and Huey founded the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and began monitoring police activities in Oakland. Uh, It started in Oakland and then would then expand into other cities. It was crazy. Well, there's a quote from Bobby Seale where he talks about how Huey Newton came up with the uh, panther as their symbol. And he says, if you push it into a corner, that panther is going to try to move left or right to get you to get out of the way. But if you keep pushing back into that corner, sooner or later, that panther is going to come out of that corner and try to wipe out who keeps suppressing in that corner. So that's just to kind of represent that, like, they're not going to go after you first. Right. But when I'm being pushed up against a corner, I will attack. Right. And so while they absolutely believed in militancy and they weren't nonviolent per se, they advocated for self-defense. Like they weren't going on the offense. They weren't going out and starting the fight, but they were there 
to finish the fight. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love that that's how the panther became their symbol. Because yeah. they're like, the panther doesn't want to fuck you up, but the panther will fuck you will up. Will fuck you up real good. <laughs> if I have to. Yeah. Well, and you were talking about the police monitoring. And in the beginning, what they would do is they would actually, they would, like, follow cops and they would stand near like in a reasonable distance away and observe when necessary they would just kind of like maybe shift their guns a little Mm -hmm. bit kind of make it known and this at first really scared the shit out of the cops a lot of the times the cops would say like hey you can't do that and then you know huey newton would like basically recite the code in california law saying that actually they they can can. conceal they can have um in open carry. So after that, they were much less likely, the cops were much less likely to harass black motorists. Right. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't unlikely. But it kind of, I I feel like this whole movement made me so scared from the beginning because I know how it ends and I know that, like, they're making enemies of cops. You knew how how it was going to end. Yeah. Like, there was no way it could have ended any other way. Yeah, well, and and they're making enemies with white police. Well, it's not necessarily that they're making enemies, because they were enemies already, but what they're doing is they're taking power back. Like, they're taking their power back. And they probably feel like not only are they taking their power back, but the cops are probably being, like, taking their power away. From them, yes, exactly. exactly. So, that's exactly right. Huey Newton had found, he'd read through, because he was actually very smart. He was super smart. in the Behind the Bastards episode, they'll talk about how people did not think he was smart because probably when he was coming up, he had, like, some form of dyslexia yeah. uh, or, like, a learning uh, disability. Huey makes me think that it would be a smart person with that name. Huey? Yeah. Yeah. Seems like I don't know. Would like, I would, I would trust a scientist named Huey. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, but, so... He had kind of a hard time learning growing up, but once he actually figured out how he learned, he was very, he's very smart. So he read through the California law books and found that citizens, they call it a loophole, but it's not a loophole. It's not. It's just the law. Yeah. Um, found that citizens were allowed to carry guns on public property as long as the guns were not concealed. So very often they would carry the gun in one hand and the law book in the other hand, and they memorized that um, yeah. part of the code, and they also encouraged other people, other members who were out um, patrolling the streets to also memorize it. Knowing your rights was a huge part of being part of the Black Panthers in the beginning. And um, another thing that kind of made the establishment or law enforcement nervous about the Black Panthers was that they were Marxists, right? They were communists. So while, of course, they were the Black Panthers. They were about um, kind of empowering black people. It was. They also had this ideology that led them to believe that there was a much bigger problem than just race, and they wanted to empower other marginalized societies, so poor people, other poor people, other people who they felt like were being um, kind of discriminated against. And people that I feel like they, they felt that they could relate to on another level. And I think right. that part of that was realizing that, you know, you have to... You know, there's a strength in numbers and finding our 
uh, likeness mm-hmm. with one another is going to be more powerful in the long run than just wanting to be one small group. I mean, they did, they teamed up with so many different, uh, very left wing right. groups, and a lot of them were, you know, pr- predominantly and, white groups. Yeah, too. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later, yeah. but also, like, not even all of them were left group, like leftist leaning groups. Yeah. Like, they even kind of paired up with other groups that maybe weren't left leaning, but were full of poor white people, mm-hmm. you know, and so they, they came to a common ground yeah. um, on that. But so so they initially started kind of doing this policing, and then after they kind of got going, they released their 10-point program. So yep. do you want to maybe, like, go through just... let's go. Do you want to go back and forth a little bit? Sure. So these 10 points, at first they were printed on just thousands of sheets of paper that were just being passed around, um, and they were kind of getting the word out and getting donations kind of through this 10-point system. Yes. And so... So these people, like, the, the initial people who joined the party, they went all in on joining the party. So oh, yeah, they, they quit their jobs? Yeah, they got a storefront, um, printed out a thousand pieces of these 10-point programs, mm-hmm. and got their members, who were now full-time Panther members, this is what they did, uh, to stand in front and distribute these 10 points, yeah. or to go around neighborhoods and pass them out. So. Exactly. All right, we'll start with number one. We want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of the black community. And below that, it says, we believe black people will not be free until we are able to determine our destiny. Two, we want full employment for our people. We believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. We believe that if the white American businessman will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessman and placed in the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its people and give a high standard of living. Number three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. We believe that this racist government has robbed us, and now we are demanding the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. That's right. That's right. 40 acres and two mules, everybody. Yes. So if you're unfamiliar with that, that was what was promised to uh, upon freedom. Yeah. It was reparations, essentially. Like, we realize that we have done wrong as a government, and so every black person who was freed from slavery was supposed to receive 40 acres of land so they could own land and property, and two Two mules mules. so that they could start their lives. And, of course, that was never given to them. And that's why people still talk about reparations today, because if they had been received the thing that was promised to them, imagine all of these people, all of this poverty, all of these issues that the black community in this time in the 1960s was experiencing had they been allowed to own land for a hundred years. Yeah, it would have exactly. been a much different situation. Exactly. For we want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. We believe that if the white landlords will not give decent housing to our black community, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperatives so that our community with government aid can build and make decent housing for its people. So uh, to add on to that, 32% of black people in the U.S. were living below the poverty line, and two-thirds of the black population lived in ghettos by Mm -hmm. 1968, which is absolutely... And when you Awful. keep that those statistics in mind, these 10 points make so much sense. They really do. So number five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in present-day society. 
We believe in an educational system that will give our people a knowledge of self. If a man does not have knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, then he has little chance to relate to anything else. It's so true. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why we were talking about earlier why they wanted to develop those societies and advocated for black history in colleges. Um, six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. We believe that black people should not be forced to fight in the military service to defend a racist government that does not protect us. We will not fight and kill other people of color in the world who, like black people, are being victimized by the white racist government of America. We will protect ourselves from the force and violence of the racist police and the racist military by whatever means necessary. Yeah, and some of the members of the party went to Vietnam and actually found a common ground with yes. a lot of those people. And this was during, you know, the Vietnam War era, and they felt that they shouldn't have to fight for a country that doesn't support them. And, yeah. I, comple- and I completely agree with right, that. You're right, because here we are in Vietnam, and we talked about, again in our, our Black Massacre episode uh, of Wall- Black Wall Street, we talked about how those men had come back from World War One. Yeah. So this is decades and decades later, and still the mistreatment, the segregation, um, the number of black people. I was at the Museum of Tolerance recently, and they were, they didn't have it up yet, but it is probably up now. So if you're in LA and you want to go, you should go see it. But they were putting up an exhibit of um, African American soldiers in World War II who should have received medals, who didn't receive medals when they came home because America was so fucking racist. Right, yeah. Wow, that's a really awesome thing. I need to see that. Yeah. Uh, Number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. We believe we can end police brutality in our black community by organizing black self-defense groups that are dedicated to defending our black community from racist police oppression and brutality. They also mentioned the Second Amendment in this, and therefore they believe that all black people should arm themselves for Mm self-defense. And I want to say one other thing that when I was reading this that I really loved is that the word black is always capitalized. Mm -hmm. I just think that's it's such a a little touch that I feel like means so much. It it does. And it makes sense because black people are black. Black people in America are black people. Yeah. Like that is our peoples. Right. Because. If you were Irish, the I would be capitalized, right? Yeah. If you knew where you were from, if you were from oh, Uganda, that's such a good point. The U would be capitalized. We don't know where we were from, so like the community that we yeah. have is is the black community. That's so, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I I didn't even think of it that far. Even it just to me finally seemed like they were claiming a name, right, and an ownership, respect. It's, it's, yeah, it's like it's like you know you capitalize your name, you capitalize where you're from. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even think of it as going, like, that far as to, like, we don't really know our history. Like, that's a really, that's, yeah. Yeah, every time I think about that, it makes me kind of, like, sad. It takes me, it it makes me a little bit, like, not speechless. It makes me mumbly. I don't, it's just sad. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's sad on the one side, but it can be such a beautiful thing. Because it means that we've developed something that is so unique. You've developed a fucking culture. Yeah. your own yeah yeah. you know what i mean it's something that is you know it's the power of the human spirit when something can be stripped from you so entirely and not being able to know your history 
yet be able to create this bond that has pa- been passed down through generations to yeah. create this culture is really something totally. beautiful. I agree. Number eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. We believe that all black people should be released from the many jails and prisons because they have not received a fair and impartial trial. So I know that that is one that a lot of people look at and they're like, well, that's unreasonable. And I (laughs) I understand where they're coming from. Yeah. But when you look at it from the perspective of there's no way that most of these men received a fair trial given that they did not have a jury of their peers. Right. So the 14th Amendment says that every man has a right to be, you know, tried by his peers, but peers are literally a a similar economic, social, religious, geographical, environmental, historical, and racial background. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that was not the case in the United States. I mean, for a long time in the South— even after slavery, only white men could serve on juries. Yeah. So there was no way that they had, um, you know, a fair and impartial jury. There was no way. And number nine kind of ties into that as well. They say, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in a court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities, as defined by the Constitution of the United States. Uh, I have listed underneath here as well. We have been and are being tried by all white juries that have no understanding of the average reasoning man of the black community. Mm-hmm. Number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And then they go on the the end of these 10 points, which I think is fucking genius. And I think that this was Huey Newton's idea. The end of uh, the 12 points uh, is... 10 points. Sorry, 10 points. Did I say 12? Yeah. <laughs> the end of the 10 points is the Declaration of Independence. So it is, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, etc., etc. Um, and... I think that that is genius. Yeah. It's like you are using the words of your precious founding fathers yep. uh, against you. Yeah. Like, if you have come out now and said that black people are no longer three-fifths of a human being, that they are full human beings, then they deserve full rights yeah. as human beings. Yeah, definitely. Well, these ten points were spread very, very fast and became very, very popular. So they opened a newspaper. Yes, they did. Called the Black Panther newspaper. Uh, It was sold for 25 cents. And this was actually the first time that uh, cops were called pigs. Yes. They kind of originated that whole thing. Yeah, so thank you for that. I can't remember who did it. They didn't originate the the phrase black power, but they did work very closely with the group. There was a did. group that was called the Black Power Movement, I think. Something. I can't remember. Sorry, we can't remember. Yeah, I but think I might have it written somewhere later when I talk more about the different people that they interacted with. But I yes, I believe that there is a separate group called the Black Power Movement, I believe. So the paper reached all kinds of people and led to donations and funded the organization, and every paper paper featured the 10 points. Yeah. So 
Around this time, now they've been patrolling the streets for a while. Mm -hmm. They're growing in size and number. They're growing across not only California, but also in other metropolitan areas in the United States. Yeah. And at this time, Ronald Reagan, um, Republican hero Ronald Reagan, (laughs) is the governor of California. And he pretty quickly signs the Mulford Act, which eliminates open carry in California. Mm -hmm. So... Just think about that for a second. Ronald Reagan. Yep. Republican icon. Yep. Signs very serious gun control legislation. He sure does. And conservatives today seem to be fine with it. Well, because because, because there aren't a small military of black people running around in the streets with guns. I feel like if that were to happen today, the same shit yeah, would happen. I, I, and actually, it's been brought up where I'm just like, you know what? Can black we just go out in the street? Should I, I've said it before where I'm just like, black people should just start doing that and then we'll get gun control, but not without losing the lives of it a bunch of black lose, people. Yeah. Donald Trump would be up tomorrow morning, though, signing the most strict right. gun laws exactly. in the entire world. Um, and don't be a martyr, though, you guys. Don't yep, do it. Don't do it. We're not calling to action here. No. So a fun fact is in the 1980s when Reagan was president and the Black Panther Party had just dissolved, he then partnered up with the NRA and yep. reversed his ideas on guns. Yeah, well, it's interesting what a because coincidence. I, I, you're kind of like, okay, well, where was the NRA during all of this, you know? But the thing is, is that the NRA had a different, like, owner or leader or whatever, mm-hmm. I guess, at the time that wasn't really, it didn't really make the NRA what it is today. They weren't pushing the Second Amendment until, like, the late 70s, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was a bit, yeah, it wasn't what we what we think of as the NRA today. It wasn't until, like after the Black Panthers kind of disbanded, or even kind of during. It it was kind of during, but Reagan didn't reverse his decision until after the Black Panthers disbanded, which is... Yeah, exactly. What a coincidence. What a coinky-dink. Well, should we talk about what they did at the California State Assembly after all this happened? So this was actually just just before the Mulford Act was um, signed into law, and probably a precipitating factor... uh, In why it was signed? In why it was signed, yes. (laughs) Yes, so... The Black Panthers were pissed, so they marched through the building floor wielding shotguns because that's what they do. And this is an intimidating group of men. I mean, you're yes. talking about men in black turtlenecks, black black um, leather jackets, and berets. berets. And they would wear, like, the ammunition almost as kind of like a, mm-hmm. like a sash. Yes. And they would be carrying these shotguns. There was 26 armed Panthers, which was led by Bobby Seale, to the Sacramento... Um, area to protest, and they went to uh, the California State Assembly. You can find pictures of this. It's rad. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And they entered, and Seal and five others were arrested. The group pled guilty to misdemeanor charges of disrupting of disrupting a legislative But they session. weren't doing anything. That's no, the they thing. weren't. They... They walked in. Them's were the laws in yeah. California <laughs> that you were allowed to open carry. Yeah. They were assembling peacefully. So why were they arrested? Yeah, they weren't they weren't threatening, they weren't um you know, even really carrying them. They just had their normal, they just had it with them and were ready for anything to happen. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, Pretty quickly, they had around 5,000 members-ish nationwide. And when I say members, like, this is something that they pointed out in the Stuff You Should Know article or podcast episode – 
when we say members, like actual Black Party, uh, Black Panther Party members, mm-hmm. we mean that these are people who are fully committed, who have quit their jobs yeah. to be full-time Black Panther Party members. So 5,000 people. That's a lot. Are, have now committed themselves. Yeah, this to, is like, it's like a nonprofit almost. To like, the, it's just it is. become huge. It is. Yeah. And so those are all the people who were full members, but then they also had many, many un- other supporters yeah. who weren't necessarily... Um, fully committed in that way, but would do things like uh, volunteer their time, donate money, uh, and those kinds of things. I mean, Jane Fonda and Marlon Brando were both big supporters of the Black Panther Party. Hell yeah. Uh, Jane Fonda actually adopted the daughter of these two Black Panther Party members, I believe, when they were like put in jail or something. Um, Political prisoners. Yeah, it was something like she... Fostered them or something. Yeah, it wasn't like a a real adoption. It was some sort of... I can't remember what it was, but I love Jane Fonda, so anywhere Mm -hmm. I can mention her, I'm gonna do it. So the police brutality programs are what made the news, of course. Like I said, you can... If you are to... If you were to Google the Mulford Act, one of the first things that's gonna come up are the newspaper articles of the Black Panthers at the Capitol. Like, that's what you're going to see. And that's what pretty much everybody saw. But they also had all of these wonderful social programs. So Huey Newton recognized... Well, they they called them survival programs. Yeah, survival programs. Yeah. Yeah. So Huey Newton recognized pretty early on that they could use their platform to make a real difference in the black community and also just for underprivileged people in general. And um, like we said earlier, from those statistics, black people were living in very, very difficult situations and conditions. And they had very little money. And the schools were just not good for black children. So one of the very first survival programs that they implemented was the breakfast program. Because Huey had read about the connection between eating a healthy breakfast and succeeding in school. Like, it gave you an advantage to succeeding. That gave him just, like, a cinnamon roll moment for me, where he was just like, well, I heard, like, you need, like, breakfast is the most Most important important meal of the day. day. Like, it's just, that's such a cute, like, I don't know, the the thoughtfulness into that is so special. But again, he's so smart. He is. Well, and it's funny, because my mom worked at a community center where there would be kids that would come in and have their breakfast there because they didn't have food at right. home and things like that and there was um a boy who couldn't afford even to put money in his in his like account to right. get breakfast in the mm-hmm. morning and my mom would go and bring him a cookie and a cup of coffee and she almost got fired for it too they That's got really mad at her she goes the kid has nothing what do you want me to do yeah and and it is true that like if we are going to advance ourselves like because clearly at this point they they weren't black separatists because there were people including i think oh no not not malcolm x but there were black leaders who were considered themselves to be black separatists they wanted to separate they wanted to form their own shit and take care of themselves and be self-sufficient their own government their own everything which which is understandable. Yes. The Black Panthers were not separatists, but they did believe that, okay, if you guys aren't going to do this for us, if you're going to keep doing things that are going to keep us down, like make it difficult for our children to get a good education, yeah. then we are going to find a way to do that for ourselves. Definitely. Well, they they gave all sorts of social services to the community that really didn't have any. Um, They took part in clothing distribution, classes on politics and economics, free Mm -hmm. medical clinics, lessons in self-defense, first aid, an emergency response ambulance program, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, and provided transportation to upstate prisons for families to visit inmates. And at one point, the breakfast program was feeding 20,000 children a day. That's 
insane over, all, all over the country all over the country five days a week and these and these programs were all funded by donations yes which is like yes bless which i kind of loved that oh. they said that they would go door to door to collect donations and if somebody was just like straight up I'm not going to give you anything. They never chastised if yeah. people gave small amounts, like even right. if it was cents on the dollar, because they realized that people were not poor. everyone can afford it. Yeah, but if they were straight up just like, nah, I'm not giving you anything, they'd be like, okay, and then they would publish their name in their newspaper. <laughs> they'd be yep. like, this this motherfucker couldn't give us oh, ten cents. They, they would do that with businesses. They would do that with mm-hmm. anybody who was just straight up like, no, we're not. Gonna I'm not help. helping. The they kids. were like, well, here's this. So in the later years, uh, one of the survival programs programs that was implemented uh, by chairwoman Elaine Brown was the Oakland Community School. And it was a free school for underprivileged students where they focused on small class size and subjects like poetry, foreign language, yoga, things that the black community didn't often have access to. And um, black history was also, of course, a huge part and of the school. And they had fucking Maya Angelou yes. come speak. And Rosa Parks. And Rosa fucking mm-hmm. Parks. And in the end, what? they had 65 survival programs in place. It's crazy. Yeah. And what's so unfortunate is that this Oakland Community School only lasted for nine years, but I think it's so important because the point five on their 10-point plan was education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're really starting at the root of it all. They're talking with children about tolerance and about acceptance and teaching them about their history and giving them an importance in their lives. Yeah, and also these things that I feel like so often in the black community come across as being very soft, mm-hmm. like poetry, yeah. yoga, meditation, these things that nowadays I feel like are not held up as important in the black community. Yeah. Because there's so much, you have to be strong, you have to be these things. There's a very, like, basic culture surrounding things like yoga and poetry and things like that. Right. Like, it's a very, like, you know, the the white girls going to a poetry yeah. reading to Ab- snap. And, absolutely. You know. And so I love it that that was something that they focused on, was like, you don't have to be hard all the time. And they give that great anecdote in stuff you should know about how this young kid who is like in his teens he showed up at the black panthers and he was like i want a gun i want to go patrol and instead they gave him books instead and he was like what are you doing i want to be armed and they said you are we just aren't we just armed you yeah yeah yeah. and so i think that "Mm, so good it's and i think that that is so important that it's like it's not just about force and i think that this is the part of the black panthers that was never taught to us like I didn't know any of this oh I I didn't either um but you know it wasn't the you know open carry it wasn't the police monitoring that really scared J. Edgar Hoover yes it was I'm sure it was partially that it it was partially that but he felt the most threatened by these survival programs because of the good it was doing for the community it was becoming something positive it was becoming something very popular and it was getting the attention of people outside of the black community. Exactly. So a lot of white progressives were now kind of advocating on behalf of the Black Panthers. Exactly. And, and, and churches were, and it yep. was giving them a legitimacy that I think terrified J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, absolutely terrified. Terrified him. And so should we talk a little bit, a little bit about Cointel Pro? Yes, let's do that. Okay, so they targeted groups and individuals that the FBI deemed subversive, such as feminist organizations. Mm-hmm. Count, I can never say this. Cointel Pro. Cointel Pro. Cointel Pro would hate us. Uh, the Communist Party anti-Vietnam War organizers, um, they were against Martin Luther King Jr., obviously. 
uh, the Nation of Islam, and of course, the Black Panther Party was a big target for them. We should say that QuaintelPro stands for Counterintelligence Program, uh, and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover issued directives under QuaintelPro ordering FBI agents to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of these movements and their leaders. Yeah, and they, he saw the Black Panthers as being the number one threat to the nation. He said that. The number one threat to the nation. During, to democracy. Yeah. And he said it during the Vietnam War. Yeah. Which was just like, Really? Really? <laughs> really? Um, and really, Pro sought to prevent the rise of what they said was a black messiah who could consolidate the masses, which is really what they were doing because they they were very likable at this point. And we didn't talk about this, but like they kind of had this like branding thing going on mm-hmm. with the way they looked and the way they acted and what they were doing. Like they were very admirable and the media loved them. Well, and they were cool. They were is fucking the thing. cool. And, and they made being black cool. Like yes. a lot of this black natural hairstyles yeah, everything. movement came out of the Black Panthers. Yeah. And not only that, so they weren't only appealing to black people who were finally feeling like they were being seen, even if they weren't members of the Black Panther Party, but they were also appealing to, we, we said earlier that white progressives were kind of on their side, these other movements and groups were on their side, but also there was a group from the Appalachians who were kind of, you would think that they would be right-leaning. Oh, yes. Um, but they were poor. Yeah. And they saw these social programs and they saw the things that the Black Panther was doing for disenfranchised people and youth. And there's actually video footage of these people like, who look very, very different coming together and meeting and hugging each Aww. other. And um, Huey Newton actually became the first black leader in 1970 to publicly support gays and lesbians. Yeah, which, which was is massive. Uh, what? Like, it it's huge. amazing. Yeah, so oppressed people uniting is, of course, the thing that terrifies the establishment the most. It's yeah. the same today. It's yeah. exactly the same thing today. Yeah. Exactly. So he was totally freaked out by this unity, whoever yeah. was, and the, survi- the survival programs. And in a letter to an FBI agent who had voiced concern about targeting the survival programs, he said, You state the Bureau should not interfere in programs such as the Breakfast for Children because many prominent humanitarians, both white and black, are interested in the program, as well as churches which are actively supporting it. You have obviously missed the point. Yeah. So he was basically telling him, we're not going to not target those things. Yeah. We are we are targeting them because of those things. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, after this, or around this time, Huey Newton gets into some trouble. So he does. He had just left prison in 19, from an arrest that had happened in 1964. Mm-hmm. And this was 1967 now, and he was out and kind of celebrating with people. Yeah, it was his release from probation. So I think he'd been oh, out, of, out of jail for a while, but he was celebrating the fact that he was, like, perfectly free. Like, he didn't have to be on probation anymore. Right. So if you want an in-depth look at kind of everything that went down. Once again, the Behind the Bastards episode um, really goes into detail of the events that happened um, with the police officer, John Frey? John Frey, yeah. Yeah. The police officer, John Frey, and what what kind of went down here, if you want details of like a play-by-play and what everyone says happened. Right. Um, We will give you a... 
a hopefully abridged version of, of yes. what happened. I won't talk too much. Um, so basically, Newton was out like riding around with his friend, a fellow Black Party Black Panther Party member, and they were pulled over by Oakland Police Department officer John Frey. And Frey recognized Newton and knew his criminal past, so he called for backup. And when the other cops arrived, shots were fired, and all three cops were wounded. Uh, and as was as was Huey Newton. As was Huey Newton, yes. So Frey was shot four times and died within the hour, and another officer in serious condition with three bullet wounds, and Newton was shot in the abdomen. He was arrested for the killing of John Frey while he was in the hospital, which would fucking suck. Yes. Um, in fact, I think that they said that they um, handcuffed him to his bed. Yeah. Yeah, for, yeah, to his hospital. Bed. Well, I think that's a pretty common thing if you have a prisoner. Just keep him from from leaving. Yeah. Well, there's a, been a lot of discussion about what exactly went on here. Yeah. Uh, and I think the version that I had read was that the gun went off and, and that began the shootout and that's what got everyone injured. Right. Um, other people have said that he did it on purpose, but it's really unclear what happened here? Yeah, Huey Newton says that he was shot first by Frey, which um, made him, he says it made him lose consciousness during the event. I think it just probably made it seem like he didn't really know what was going on if he, he had been maybe shot disoriented. First. Yeah, you know, some officers say that the shooting began after Newton had already been arrested, which I don't know what he would have been arrested for because he didn't, uh, they recognized him for his criminal past. I don't think that they were actually. I have no idea. Yeah, and then a witness claims that, you know, Newton shot Frey with his own gun. There's lots of different... I mean, eyewitness accounts are the worst. Like, you can't well, necessarily and it's bank I, on them. It's eyewitness accounts where <laughs> there's an agenda as yeah. well. So if the cops did shoot him on purpose, do you think that the other people present who were maybe team police are going to say that like no. they're not going to say exactly that. that's you know everybody has a bias everybody has an agenda so it is kind of you know everybody who says what happened might have a reason for why they say that but we know we know the facts and that is that john frey passed away that um, Huey newton was convicted he for was convicted it. yeah he was sentenced to 12 to 15 years in prison yeah for voluntary and, manslaughter and this kind of it had a dual effect on the party yeah so on the one hand, this is kind of the beginning of when you're seeing the leadership and the party start to fracture and break, yeah. which is going to have long-term consequences. Yeah. And it's kind of the beginning of the end, really, yeah. if you want to start way back, like the the first inklings of the party starting to fall apart. Exactly. But well, on, because without leadership, right. things fall apart. But on the other side of it, there was this massive Free Huey campaign Huge, where yes. a lot of people saw Huey Newton as a political prisoner. Angela yeah. Davis, if you... Um, want a really good documentary, there is a documentary called Free Angela and All Political Prisoners where she talks about this. Yeah. I'm still kicking myself because I had the opportunity to see her speak a few years ago and I couldn't go. Because <gasps> oh, no. uh, I, like, had to work late or something stupid. Oh, that's so... That's the worst reason not so to be dumb. able to go. Oh, I my know. God. I know. But, so, on... On that hand, it brought back a lot of um, progressive attention. Progressive whites being like, you know what, we're going to stand behind this guy. It was during the um, during the Vietnam protests and things yeah. like that, and people were already in the mood to protest. Oh so they, yes, they were. They came out kind of full force. They definitely and were. And I, I will jump ahead a little bit. <clears throat> I will jump ahead a little bit and just say that the charges against. Huey Newton were eventually overturned yeah. in 1970. So 
if that tells you anything about necessarily like the credibility of the charges to begin with. Yeah. And I haven't looked into that case enough to really know what happened. I haven't either. That would have been a, a it would have been a much longer episode had we done that. Y- yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about the the murder of Fred Hampton. This is yes. another really big kind of spark that set everything off. Right, because while the party was fractured, right, the leadership was fractured, um, Eldridge Cleaver, who is another kind of head of the party. He's an interesting dude. He's a weird dude. He went to prison before he was part of the Black Panthers Mm -hmm. and wrote... What was it called? It was called, like, Soul on Ice. Yes. And it was, like, a yeah. series of, like, poetry mm-hmm. and stuff like that that was—it was about—I have it written somewhere, and I can't remember what it said. It was, like—it was about black oppression, right? I, I believe so. It was something that got him a lot of popularity when he got out of prison in New York. Yeah. So uh, the Black Panther Party kind of—not used, used is the wrong word, but because— Well, took advantage of, of his popularity. In New York. Yeah. Because Bobby— and Huey are both from California. Right. So it was nice to have somebody on the other side of the country kind of managing things over there. Well, and somebody where the people already kind of knew what he was knew about. Knew and respected him. Yeah. So, so he was in Cuba at this point. Sorry. It's all good. He was in Cuba at this point to avoid being arrested, arrested um, after a shootout that resulted in the death of one of the original Black Panther members, Bobby Hutton. And then enter Fred Hampton. Enter Fred Hampton. Okay, so Hampton was a, a really great speaker, and he had a great personality. Super charismatic. Yeah, like, he, he got the movement, like, back on track when the leader when the leaders kind of, like, fled or went to jail, and he was just, like, a really strong backbone, and I'll get into more detail, but basically what happened is that he was assassinated by the FBI and Chicago police in 1969. Uh, there were 90 bullets shot by Chicago PD, and all of them were directed at Fred Hampton. Right. Um, he was actually in bed with his nine months pregnant girlfriend, and she was taken out of the room. Allegedly, her robe was ripped open, and they got her out of the room, and they they just shot him 90 times. And the thing that's sketchy as fuck, so the FBI was sending in all of these informants, right? Uh, so the Black Panthers were kind of aware that there were some informants, which mm-hmm. created a lot of distrust, which is also what really which hurt was the, the plan. Group. Yeah. That, that was the plan. Yeah. So J. Edgar Hoover wanted to create as much discord as possible within the party. He wanted to break so, them Yes. To beat them. Yeah. So he had been planting informants within the party, and one informant named William O'Neill, he is the informant that provided the FBI and the Chicago PD with very detailed information about Hampton's apartment. So, yeah. so Fred Hampton was set to become the head of the Black Panther Party. Yeah. And he was a more dangerous head of the Black Panther Party than either Bobby Seale or Huey Newton because he was so charismatic, so likable, and enigmatic, and people were drawn to him. White people were drawn to him. He would have been kind of this black messiah sort of... He was great-looking, too. ...figure. Yeah, he was super good-looking. Yeah. And so the FBI was determined to prevent any enhancement in the Black yeah. Panther Party's leadership. Yeah, so they sent O'Neill in, and he was at, he went to Hampton's apartment, and they had dinner together, but O'Neill put a barbiturate sleep agent in Hampton's drink so that when, you know, the FBI and the Chicago PD came, he would be... He couldn't fight back. He couldn't fight back. And at this point, there were actually, this is how paranoid they were, rightfully so. People kind of talked about the Panthers as though um, their paranoia was was strange, but really, like, it made sense. They had 
a person basically on watch duty. So inside Fred Hampton's apartment, when you opened the door, there was um, a man there by the name of Mark Clark who was sitting, guarding the apartment with his gun out. Yeah. he just couldn't do anything because right. they knocked the door down at 4 a.m. and shot him immediately. Immediately. There and was the, no there was no room for him to be able to fight back. Right. And the only gun that, that went off was his gun as he was hitting the floor. Exactly. So that is the only gun that is the only bullet that was fired by the Black Panthers that night. Yeah, and the the police had an excuse that they went in because they'd heard that there was ammunition being kept in the home. Right, and that's and the FBI actually gave them that information. They yeah. said, like, this is the thing that you can use. Yeah. But the force was so excessive, and they went at 4 a.m., and they went to kill Fred Hampton. And 90 shots. 90 He's shots. He's laying in bed asleep. You don't mm-hmm. have to shoot him 90 times. Almost, like, that is angry. Almost all directly at him. 90 to 99 were shot that night. And, like you said, he was drugged. So they pulled him. You can see the pictures of him laying in the doorway because they pulled him out of bed and shot him in the doorway. And What do you think the point of that was? I think that they wanted to be able, this is my understanding, oh, to be like able to he say came he got to the up door. and came, was, they didn't want to shoot him in his bed, although yes. um, there is also a picture of the bed and it's soaked in blood, well, too. Well, there's so. fucking proof. And you know what the most disgusting thing about all of this is, is that that fucking informant got a bonus. Mm-hmm. He got a motherfucking bonus Not only did the this. informant get a bonus, but also uh, basically everybody involved said that the police were justified in yep. their actions. And in fact, they said that they were they used incredible restraint for not yes. killing all of the Black Panthers that were there because there were seven Black Panthers who survived the raid and everybody else I, yeah. had died. Well, because um, I guess they just had to focus on their mission. It wasn't about getting rid of everybody. It was about taking down someone that they were afraid was going to get to the top. Right, and they were arrested anyway. Yeah. So... Yeah, well, and then, I mean, it took until the 1990s for the Supreme Court to settle. Right, and and these these raids happened frequently, these kinds of raids. And one of them happened at a fucking Breakfast for Kids event. Yes. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? They burned the place down. Yeah, so the Chicago PD also did a raid... That doesn't make you look good. ...on the Breakfast for Children program uh, in the city, and all of the supplies were burned. They, yeah. They literally would rather children go hungry. Yeah, like, exactly. Well, and then in 1969, there was another uh, shootout that occurred in L.A., which was the first time the SWAT team was ever used. Mm-hmm. So... The L.A. chapter of the Black Panther would then, like, later reemerge as the Slauzen Street Gang, which eventually reemerged as the Crips. And I believe it was Bobby Seal who—I might be getting that wrong— um, but I think it was Bobby Seale who later went on and drew a parallel between the dismantling of the Black Panther Party and the gang culture he, in he these did. major cities he because did. you took away all of their political motivation, you took away these survival programs, you took away this mm-hmm. idea that they could have any kind of forward mobility or channel um, their energy, but you left them fully armed. Yeah. <laughs> so it created this gang culture in a lot of these major cities. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, at this point, the Panthers and the FBI and law enforcement are at, like, war. They're at war. Yeah. For real. So, uh, when Huey Newton got out of jail, Cleaver was very much, you know, he was head of New York, and they had kind of 
grew very different types of parties in their minds. Mm-hmm. And they had disagreements from the beginning. Yeah, they yeah. didn't they didn't really agree on a lot of things and they had very different ideas of how the party should be run. Uh, some members believe that the Black Panthers should participate in local government and social services while others wanted to focus more on the police brutality. They really just couldn't come to a conclusion about what yes. they wanted it to mean. Yeah. Um so Eldridge Cleaver had started the Black Liberation Army. Yeah. Uh, which was an offensive militarized group and it was planning attacks so up until this point huey newton was always like we're a defensive group we will only we're the panthers will only fight when backed into a corner whereas eldridge cleaver was like no we are going to strike first which then kind of turned them into a a terrorist organization yeah um and it didn't go over well with huey newton when he got out of jail and so they started um arguing to such a degree that the Black Liberation Group and the Black Panthers started going after each other. Yeah, they did. Uh, so there was a ton of infighting happening there. And yeah. at this point, Huey was also addicted to heroin and cocaine. Yeah. Um, probably from being in prison. Yeah, and, and it, it made him into like a very different type of person. Mm-hmm. He even said that he was committing himself to revolutionary suicide by slowly killing himself with drugs. Right. Like, but he, he became paranoid. a very different person. Yeah, he was out of his mind. Yeah, so Bobby Seale steps in and he decided they're going to close down all the chapters and bring everyone to Oakland and he is going to run for mayor. Uh, They also wanted to start a voter registration campaign to register people in urban communities to vote. Which was very successful. Yeah. And, you know, Bobby Seale actually got 40% of the vote and lost in a runoff. So he did really, really well. Yeah, because there were like nine candidates. There were. And he came in a very, very close second. Yeah, yeah. So there is one other kind of incident that I think... uh, kind of made the the rest of society kind of question the Black Panthers as well. Because in 1969, Alex Rackley in the New York chapter was suspected of being an FBI informant, so they took him and tortured him by pouring boiling water on him for days until he confessed. Although this could be a false confession, obviously, since he was tortured. And then they took him into the woods and they shot him. And when this came out, uh, there was some party members that were kind of like, that's not what we're here for. We're not here for that. But this was also one of the right. New York... There was a huge schism at that point. And yeah. I, I do believe it was members of the of the Black Liberation. It um, was... Yeah, it just said in the it just said in the New York chapter. Right, yeah. But there was so much, like, intermingling yeah. with, with the groups at that point. Um, so they lost a lot of support also from white progressives at that point. Yeah. Uh, and and they had lost a lot of trust. The schism between Eldridge and Huey had lost a lot of trust within Black Party members, uh, Black Panther Party members. And then, although it was awesome what Bobby Seale did, and if he had won, I think this would be a very different story. Yeah. But because he did not win um, in his run to become mayor, unfortunately what that did then was it had zapped so much of the Black Panthers' um, resources. They yeah. had spent a lot of money and funds, yeah. or, or money and funds, yeah. but they had spent a lot of resources and and funds on this campaign. Right, and then he lost, and I would assume it would be kind of something like, well, what do we do now? Like, right, what else? Exactly. What else can we do? Our, our leadership is fractured. Huey's a fucking mess. Like, well, yeah, and then and he eventually had to go into exile in Cuba for the murder of Kathleen Smith, who was a sex worker that he shot and killed in Oakland. Allegedly, allegedly shot. Um, although he, I read somewhere that he says it was his first non-political murder. 
I I would like to see the citation. Citation needed. Okay, let me because find everything. I don't have my I've, articles written down, so let me look it up, and I'm gonna okay, find it. Okay, because everything that I'd seen um, said that that was unsubstantiated. Well, I mean, either way, uh, he was acquitted because one of the witnesses was high on marijuana. So wow. they were like, "Oh, well, we can't take this witness testimony because they were fucking can't have stoned. a pothead in here." Yeah. <laughs> so regardless. Um, there were things about the Black Panther Party there at the end, especially, that that weren't so great. Yeah. But it's also very important to acknowledge that this was all planned by the FBI. This was their plan from the beginning. Yeah. They sowed seeds of distrust. They continued to harass and assassinate and jail members of the Black Panther Party um, from the very beginning. Well, and they made them fight amongst themselves. They know that that's the most powerful way to take down a group of people. And that's why whenever, you know, in today's world, when you know, Democrats or left-wingers are, like, fighting each other. It's like, that's exactly what Donald Trump wants. Right. Why are you doing this, it's, you know? It's exactly what they, they want. They want us to fall apart. And they also did a, a good job of fracturing the party by destroying its leaders. Yeah. Like, it went for the top. You had these kids who came from really um, lower-class backgrounds who were going, who had formed this amazing, incredible nationwide party that was doing wonderful things for the black community and for disenfranchised people everywhere, and they were going up against the U.S. fucking government, like the U.S. government and the FBI. So really, they didn't stand a chance. Like, if the government wanted to destroy them, they were going to they destroy will. them. Exactly. And... um. They absolutely needed to exist. The Black Panther Party needed to exist. It did. It had a, an incredible, lasting impact, positive impact on the black community in a lot of ways. And yeah. we can argue the negative impact or repercussions of the Black Panther Party. But but I think all of that was part of the process. There was something even in the things that I don't personally agree with that I have a certain understanding for. I don't agree in an open carry law that scares the shit out of me, but I understand its importance in their using of that Second Amendment. Well, it, it was necessary. It was incredibly right? yeah. necessary. And it, and it made an impact, and it also, I think, empowered a lot of people that felt very powerless. And it highlighted a hypocrisy yeah. that I think it's still used as an example to highlight the hypocrisy of... Um, who can own a gun and who, who, can, who carry. can carry it. And, and it highlights kind of um, this need to protect your community and yourself yeah. from the people who are supposed to be protecting you. Exactly. Because it's hard to kind of like talk about because if you're from a community that has always trusted the police, you can't understand what it's like to be in a community where you feel so unprotected, where you don't have anyone. Angela Davis actually has a wonderful, um, you can watch her in an interview where they're talking to her about the Black Panthers and they're talking about the violence of the Black Panthers. Yeah. And she's like, you want to talk to me about violence? Yeah. She's like, I grew up in the South. I grew up down the street from a church where your people bombed our church and killed little girls. You want to talk to me about violence? Yeah. Like, let's talk about violence. Exactly. And, yes, girl. And, you know, along that same line, the legacy of brutality against black people has always existed. It continues to exist. In that Stuff You Should Know podcast, they, they were talking about statistics, and they said in 2015, 258 black people were killed by cops in the United States. So it is a lasting legacy, um, and 
it makes sense that the Black part, the Black Panther Party existed. Yeah, it did. It did a lot of good. And I mean, I didn't add this in, but during the 1968 Olympics, I believe, Summer Olympics, there were two uh, U.S. medalists that threw up like the Black Power sign yeah. and uh, showed support for, you know, the Black Power movement and the Black yes. Panthers. And they were never allowed to compete in the Olympics again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's something there's... Well, even the Olympics this year, uh, or the coming Olympics, the one that's coming up, they put out a statement and they said that you are not permitted to do any kind of political, um, you're not allowed to have any kind of political demonstration. So you can't kneel, you can't do, you can't raise your fist, you can't do any of that stuff. That would make me want to do it even more. I would want to win just so I could do that. And they can say, well, you can't compete anymore. That's fine. I already won. Fine. Deuces. Bye. So do you want to touch on, um, here at the end, since I know we're running a little long, Yeah, I did want to touch on the women of the Black Panther Party. I mean, we gotta. We gotta. I mean, it was a very male-driven party. There was a lot of sexism. I mean, the two most prominent uh, women in the party, I would say, are Kathleen Cleaver and Elaine Brown. Kathleen Cleaver was Eldridge Cleaver's wife, and Elaine Brown, um, for a short time, was actually, like, the chairwoman of the Black Panthers when the leadership was very shifty. Yeah. Um, but it was, they both say it was a total boys was, club. Of course it was. And this is such a perfect example of why we need intersectionality. Because for the women in this party, it was difficult because it was like, of course you you see something amazing happening for your community and for your people and you want to um, get behind that and embrace that. Exactly. But at the same time, this this organization in a lot of ways was very misogynistic. Yeah. And this is at the time when women's liberation was really coming into its own. Yeah. And so it was very difficult for these women. I bet it was hard to fight both fights. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of times women within the Black Panther Party were delegated to secretarial work. Yeah. But there is a good article, or not a good article necessarily, but just highlights some of the women in the Black Panther Party uh, from Essence.com that I read. So Elaine Brown took over for Huey Newton as chairwoman when Huey Newton went to Cuba. So Mm -hmm. she was chairwoman of the Black Panther Party from 1974 to 1977. And she said that basically her title was meaningless. She said, a woman in the black power movement was considered at best irrelevant. A woman asserting herself was a pariah. If a black woman assumed a role of leadership, she was said to be eroding black manhood, to be hindering the progress of the black race. Brown left the party when she could no longer tolerate the sexism and patriarchy. She founded the National Alliance for Radical Prison Reform, and um, she worked to help release prisoners after that. But she did try during her time as chairwoman to break down gender roles. Um, She would put women out on patrols. Yeah, even though they were very much uh, persuaded not to do so, she would have them go out on patrols. And she had men running some of these uh, social programs. Yeah, well, and I mean, that was something that I was thinking about when we were talking about the fact that um, Elaine Brown started the Oakland Community School, Mm -hmm. and a lot of these women were kind of spearheading the breakfast program, things like that, which to me seems very, like, obvious. Like, we're going to have the women take care of the kids and, you know, do the secretarial work But and the women, like that. at some point, because law enforcement and the FBI were arresting men in yeah. such great numbers, the women were really running shit for, they like, were. a long time. Yeah. And at one point, 50 to 70 percent of party membership was female. Exactly. So the <laughs> women were 
what made the machine go. Exactly. And, like, without them, the Black Panther Party would have absolutely fallen apart. Yeah. But it is good to note, like, so there we have Elaine Brown, who was the chairwoman for a time, and then Kathleen Cleaver did become the communication secretary and the first woman to be made part of the party's decision-making cabinet. Yeah. So there was some of this progressive stuff happening, but it is kind of a testament to why we need intersectionality. Because there these margins interact and work simultaneously. Yeah. Um, but, huh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have one last thing that I wanted to share, and it is a quote from the author Jamma Lazro. He says, the Panthers became national heroes in black communities by infusing abstract nationalism with street toughness, by joining the rhythms of black working class youth culture to the interracial. I never looked this up. What is that? Elan? I'm not sure. Just skip the word. Okay. Mm-hmm. To the interracial and effervescence. Here, let me of... look it up and you can replace it with a different word. Yeah. The, it says the interracial Elan and the effervescence of the Bay Area New Left politics. Energy, style, enthusiasm. Okay. By joining the rhythms of the black working class youth culture to the international energy and effervescence of Bay Area New Left politics, in 1966, the Panthers defined Oakland's ghetto as a territory, the police as interlopers, and the Panther mission as a defense of the community. The Panthers' famous policing the police drew attention to the spatial remove that white Americans enjoyed from the police brutality Mm -hmm. that they had come to characterize in life in black urban communities. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was trying to say is like, I don't think even now, in fact, I know because of the discussion that happens every single time there is an unarmed black person shot of, you know, white people saying, well, what did he do? Well, all of these things that there is such a disconnect culturally um, and that a lot of people in white communities just don't understand the dynamics and the history that's at play between the black community and the police. Yeah, because that is not discussed enough in predominantly white homes. Right. That's the thing that's upsetting because there was a lot of things that I was very unaware about when it came to racism in this country until I was much, much older. Of course, I knew that racism was not dead. I knew that there was everyday racism, but I I had a... I had blinders on to a lot of the very uh, violent and deadly uh, well, acts. I'm, I'm from a mixed-race family, and same, because I was raised predominantly by a white mother, and I spent a lot of my adolescence and teenage years in very white spaces and yeah. white communities, and so I did have a very different perspective. It wasn't until I kind of got out into the world that I was like, oh, no, people with brown skin are treated differently. Yeah, and, and like, you can our even reality look, is different. And you can even look back on your childhood and see things right, differently. I right. know for me, I see a lot of things when I look back very, very differently mm-hmm. of things that I experienced when I was younger that I witnessed. Um, so yeah, it, it's just one of those things where it was about making you know, white people fucking uncomfortable, which I think is great, and making them take notice. And And making black people comfortable. Exactly, and also creating this community that wasn't just for one person. It was a a community that was for like-minded souls and like-minded people for one common goal. It was a beautiful idea that didn't get the chance to really live out to its full potential, and that is so sad. And that's, like, a lot of our heroes in black history, unfortunately. We look at Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, you know, all Mm -hmm. of these 
amazing activists and assassinated, movements. Assassinated. <laughs> yeah, exa- and then their and their movement was assassinated. Like mm-hmm. I mean, it's just and their their people were assassinated by the FBI. All of this is so fucking corrupt and disgusting. And to see it all in a, in this you know microscopic way that we do in Black History Month is just overwhelming to see. Uh, all of the ways that, you know, we've been taught that the government and the FBI and all of these things, they have your best interests at heart. It's and not, when you learn about these the things, case. you see that that is not the right. case and that it, it yes, it is racial and that is the most important thing. But we are looking at it when we talk about the Black Panthers also from a class perspective. Absolutely. It's, and that's it's something that's racist, interesting. It's classist. And I don't want to be this person, but... I, I just want people to be very aware that we do want to have this a bit like this idea that they have our best interest at heart. But at the end of the day, they do not want us to unite. They don't yeah. want us to get together because we're stronger together. Yeah. Like that's the truth. Like all there's more of us than there are of them. Uh-huh. There are more people um, who are disenfranchised. And if we just focused on the things that unite us, and I know it's hard to do, and I know sometimes we even fail at doing that on this show. But if we were just to do that, we could we could break the whole fucking system. We could we break could. the wheel. Yeah. You know what I mean? We could reinvent that fucking wheel, Keegan. Yeah. Yes, we can. Hoy, that was another really heavy, dense... It took uh, me forever to write my fasc- notes. Same <laughs> fascinating, wonderful uh, week for me to be researching all yeah, of this. Yeah, this I, was your idea, so good job. Oh, thank you. Um, I really hope that you guys enjoyed listening to this and that you got a lot out of it and learned more just like I did. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have any thoughts on this episode at all, or if you have any other ideas for us, we do have our next week's episode already kind of planned out and then we will be into Women's History Month. So if there's anything that you want us to discuss during Women's History Month, hit us up. Let us know what you want us to talk about. We'd love to hear it. Go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com. You can also get us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminists. Direct message us there if you'd like. We have a Twitter, which is at Yanf Podcast. Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. Chat with our fellow listeners in the group page and go ahead and rate and review us on our business page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which we love oh so much. And then you will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. Which, speaking of which, I never know because I want to tag people in them. Right. But I think their Apple ID sometimes are different than their, like, Instagram yeah. handle. So if we're not actually, like, calling you out, but you see your review... Tag yourself. Mess- yeah, tag yourself, message us, whatever, and let us know so that we can give you the credit where credit is due. Um, also, if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a teeny tiny bit. Yeah. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. Bye-bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.